Hello and welcome to Voices of Seat Kakwan. On today's show, Deborah O'Gara and Nicole Hollingstead have a wide-ranging conversation about their connection to homeland. Stick with us. Hello and welcome to another episode of Voices of Seat Kakwan. I'm Hannah Floor and I am joined in Studio 2 here at KFSK by Kari Peterson. Um, Kari, what do we have this week? Hi, Hannah. This week we're going to get to listen to Deborah O'Gara and Nicole Hollingstead talking about connection to land, to Linkit land. And um, they are talking about how that connection is so important and gives a person a sense of belonging. And then they also talk about resilience and adaptability and moving into the future. I recorded this conversation on Zoom, so it's a little bit um, rough in spots, but I hope that you stick with it because it's a really fabulous conversation. Okay, and both Deborah and Nicole are members of our content committee, which is the group um, that decides what topics we're gonna cover on the radio show and um, who's gonna be involved in those conversations. Yeah, and upcoming we'll have an episode about um, giving some little background and interviews with people on our content committee because it's such a wonderful group of women that we're working with. That's true. Um, okay. Thanks, Kari. Let's get to the conversation. Today is February 10th, and I'm here with Nicole Hollingstead and... Deborah O'Gara to talk about cultural connectivity to land. Welcome, ladies. Should we start with, um, we'll start with Deborah. So my name is Deborah O'Gara. I am Clinket, Yupik, and Irish. My Clinket name is Dejuk Suk, and I relocated here in um, about to Petersburg about two and a half years ago. And um, I am of the Teton clan, which um, originates in Wrangell, which is just across the channel from here. And my, um, the other part of me is from Mountain Village, which is up on the Yukon River. Thank you, Deborah. Nicole? Hi, I'm Nicole Hollingstead. My Klingit name is Chakla, which means Mother Eagle. Chakla Yuchat Duasauk, Ye Chayahat, Takdain Tan, Nakat Seti, Akwedi, and Narwayahat. I was born and raised in Petersburg. I'm Klingit of the Raven Moiety from the Sea Pigeon Takdain Tan clan and the Snail House. And being born and raised in Petersburg and being Klingit means I have been a lifelong advocate for the landless effort in Petersburg to return land um, under the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. Thank you, Nicole. I'm so excited to, to listen to what both of you have to say today. Um, we had talked about this cultural connectivity to land and talking about native identity 
so closely is so closely intertwined with the land. Deborah, do you want to start us off by explaining a little bit about that, the, the connection to the land? Well, you know, it's interesting. When I was growing up, I was taught many of the values um, that I now understand to be native values or Tlingit values, though that's not what we called them when I was growing up. And even though I had never been to Southeast Alaska until I was an adult, I grew up in North Seattle. I always introduced myself as somebody who was from Seattle and Mountain Village and Southeast Alaska. And again, I had been to Mountain Village as a little girl, but I had never been to Southeast, but it's always been my homeland. And um, so I always felt akin to that. And I'll tell you 16 years ago now, when I took the ferry and moved to two and relocated to Juneau, I got off the ferry and I felt immediately at home, even though of course I had um, never been there before. And, um, and I think that connection just was inherent, um, not just in, you know, just in mem ancestral memory or anything like that, but just from um, hearing my relatives, um, both my relatives who I remember hearing stories from, but also reading about my relatives who I never had an opportunity to meet in person about their experiences and their life struggles in Southeast Alaska. So um, it was always a part of, of, of my being. And um, as, soon as, I, as soon as I arrived, I'll tell you, there was things that I just naturally went out into the woods and started doing without, seemingly without anybody really showing me how to do. I just, again, instinctually knew um, things, things to do. Of course, I sought out a lot of teachers so that I could learn how to do it properly and what to how to harvest and the more protocols and such like that but I also just um, uh, really uh, felt at home right away and knew that there was a lot of resources for me to be able to draw from and I've always been an artist and um, so in the last again 16 years since moving up here I have been able to really develop to really develop a lot of my a lot of my artistic um, creativity um, endeavors and learn a lot of different things, which we'll, we can talk about later, but that's become my connection to this land. And of course that's, um, I've carried that with me here to Petersburg, which is now my new home. I'll share some of my own thoughts about that cultural connectivity. When you think about Clinket society, and if you know even just a little bit, or if you know a lot, if you're born into it, or you're just learning about it, Clinket society is organized into two groups, which we call moieties, and you're either eagle or you're raven. And underneath those moieties are an entire system of clans. Most, if not all, are named for either a geographic place name or for an animal and the spirit of that animal. So if you look at any Clinket clan list or mapping, you, you can't help but realize how much of 
the identity of who you are, what clan you belong to, what house you may belong to, what social grouping you're in is connected and named for an element of the land and the animals that, that live on that land and have a spirit that, that we recognize and respect. So being placate means even if you don't personally know what that connection is, it still exists. And that's what's so interesting to me is even if you're a little bit distant from your own culture, you are still from a certain family who is from a certain grouping, from a region, from a clan, and that's there for you to discover. If you already know that and you know, are, are able to claim that, that means that born is not just a birthplace, but a birthright. And when you know that identity, being able to connect to the land is such a, it's such a powerful feeling about belonging in a place. And that's how I've always felt about Petersburg. Right. It's a sense of knowing who you are and knowing, knowing that you belong someplace. What helps make you feel that sense of belonging to a place? And for so many Alaska Natives who were lucky enough to be raised within their, their natural life ways, within our cultural practices and traditions. So much of that involves the relationship to the land and the foods that are available within it and on it. Alaska Natives have always practiced, you know, sustainable resource use. And so for thousands of years, more than 10,000, which has been scientifically validated, Alaska Natives in particular Clinkets, you know, in the Petersburg area, in the Sitkakwan area, have been able to use those resources um, to feed themselves. And so much about serving is, is just embedded in the DNA of who we are as clinkets on this land. The seafood that's the seaweed that's that's dried and prepared, the way we gather berries and make use of them, you know, everything under the sun was gathered seasonally according to when it was available and what it was used for. And some of it, of course, was just food for the eating, but some of it is ceremonial. And people sometimes ask, you know, why, why is like subsistence so important? They think of it maybe in terms of a policy, but we think of it in terms of how we've always lived our life, having access to those foods and being able to gather and hunt the way we always have is so important because it is, it is about identity, about how so many generations of your family gathered and prepared those foods and the way that that's taught, you know, from grandparents to parents to, to grandchildren, that just helps place you in a way that feels so solid and so organic to where you are. And, you know, that's part of identity too, is how you gather those resources and use them. And, and food is one, but the natural resources that are used culturally are another. And Deb is a weaver. So she, you know, she knows a lot about the spruce root gathering and the wool and, you know, the way some of those natural resources are used for the arts in our culture. 
and on radio, you can't see that she just passed me the baton or the Tykin stick or whatever. <laughs> and that's true. I, you know, I go out into the, um, into the woods or on the land um, to gather, not, not food necessarily, though. I can tell you, I love those berries <laughs> and, and um, we'll, we'll um, go out and get my share of the berries. Um, but I also go out to get dub devil's clubs so that I can make beads. And it's interesting. I'll just add to what Nicole was saying. It's not just for um, subsistence or for food items that we use ourselves, but I also was taught, um, and this goes back to, even though I didn't live here, I was still taught values. I was taught to always have a full freezer of food um, because not because that's how much I need um, for my own um, household, but so that I have plenty to give away to others who, uh, if the occasion arises where there's folks who need food or you just want to give a gift. And almost always I'll give gifts of food and, and, and I always have a freezer full of, of um, um, not always native food, but food that I, can, that I can share because it's the sharing I think that's um, really important. And I'll just get back to Devil's Club. When I go out and harvest um, Devil's Club, which is in the springtime, I actually only use this, the, um, the wood, the, the stems underneath the bark. But I always clean off the bark and I put it in a bag and I find somebody who's gonna make salve or tea or, or that rather than throwing it away because I don't use it, I find somebody who will use it. Um, and of course you leave the, the leaves in the woods to um, be able to fertilize the soil for the next, ne next year's crops. And um, we do the same thing with hunting. Um, since I've been here, I've discovered that there's um, mountain goat hunters in town. And I actually just yesterday picked up a half of a mountain goat hide from one of the hunters. And um, he had heard that I was a weaver and I had asked him, if you're going out mountain goat hunting and you, get, and you get a goat, I want the hide if you're not gonna use it. And he says, well, we never use it. We just leave it in the woods unless we're gonna you know, make it into a rug or something. And I said, no, 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 we can use it. We weavers can use that for um, spinning our warp and our yarns that we need to, to do. And that's how it was traditionally done. Of course, um, I've learned how to weave now in the last several years and we use, um, you know, store-bought materials mostly because there's a shortage of mountain goat. But I can tell you that it brings you so much closer to your ancestors if you can use the materials that our ancestors used, even though we can't use them all the time because they are, they are in, um, in demand. There's a shortage of, of the natural resources. And cedar bark is another one that um, because of climate change, there is a shortage of yellow cedar trees because the climate change is warming up the soil, which is rotting the roots of the cedar trees um, to such an extent that the trees are actually dying. Um, so it's not even, though logging has had an effect too, but even beside the, the logging, that has, that's not been the culprit that's wiping out the trees necessarily it's climate change is warming the soils too much and so we have to be adaptive and find other resources that we can um, use in order to keep our 
um, art forms alive and um, and and we that's one thing that we've always been is resourceful and adaptive and that's what we're doing today. Deb, if I can, mm -hmm. I'd love to pick up on a thread, you know, you've just wove into this, if I could borrow your storyline. Yeah. Um, you just mentioned uh, climate change and how that's changing cedar growth. And what I think is so wonderful is we've had thousands of years of indigenous knowledge of knowing the patterns and cycles of the land that we um, you know, lived on and, and lived from and shared a spiritual relationship with. And the knowledge that our ancestors have and that our elders have now about topography, geography, astrology, ecology, the, the, what they know about certain places and what has changed about river flow, about rainfall, about the position of the stars in the sky, that is now being appreciated and acknowledged as scientific validated information. And that is so satisfying to see um, the, you know, that rise in indigenous knowledge uh, as scientific data, um, as you know, reliable information, especially when it comes to how do we handle the changes from climate? Um, what other resources can we turn to? Like you just said, Deb, if something runs short, you know, what historically has been used, you know, in its place? How do we balance the use of these resources? Um, so having that connection to the land and that identity through the land and that, that intimate knowledge because of how you were raised and the values that, that you live, that carry on through you from your ancestors, having that be recognized and upheld and, and, and being a real contribution to conversations about global issues is really exciting to see. Now, if we, if, if the scientist, the Western scientists had only started listening about 50 years ago, we might have been able to have a bigger impact on climate change. But that said, I'm, I'm also just really happy, like you, are, like I can tell you are, um, that some of that traditional knowledge is being um, not just respected and appreciated, but listened to as well and sought after, because I think we do have um, we and our ancestors have a lot of answers that can help um, avoid just near destruction of this planet um, so that we can continue to live on this planet for another 10,000 years. Absolutely, and, and longer, yes. You know, one of the things that we've talked about is how identity uh, in Alaska Native cultures is a collective identity. You're not just an individual moving through the world. And particularly when it comes to Western capitalist models of how do I value myself? Is it through relation of wealth for myself or my, or my immediate family? In the Clinkett culture, wealth and wellness was always expressed communally distributed among the community members. Like Deb mentioned, if you 
when you gather food, you gather it for the sake of, you know, your clan and your community and you share that. And having a collective identity like that, that, that draws you to a place and is grounded in a place, you can imagine then how hard it is when that connection is broken, when traditional homelands that, that you've been on for thousands of years have a new structure. And specifically, I'm talking about the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, INCSA of 1971, that settled indigenous land claims so the Trans-Alaska Pipeline could be built. And that piece of legislation assigned ownership of land to almost every village and native region in the state of Alaska. There were five communities left out and there are five communities in Southeast Alaska and Petersburg is one of them. So Petersburg was not granted the acreage of land that every other community in Alaska got under ANCSA. That's why we're fighting so hard to try to right this wrong. It's been 50 years since ANCSA was passed. And as a, as a Tlingit, as a native myself, to be from a place that I know is my ancestral homeland, but that doesn't have ownership under the current structure we're using, just leaves a hole in my heart. And it, it matters to so many people to be literally grounded in the, the, the place of your family and your ancestors. So that's why we keep fighting for legislation uh, to allow those five communities to have the parcels of land that every other community in Alaska received under ANCSA. So the corporations that were set up under ANCSA were definitely a new model for Alaska Natives to have to work through. See Alaska as the regional corporation for Southeast Alaska, and you know, with any luck, someday soon, Petersburg will have its own urban corporation, which they should have had a right to 50 years ago. But we've been working under that model long enough. It's really important to assert those Alaska Native values in the businesses that we have. So Sea Alaska has been moving away from uh, large timber harvesting in Southeast and looking at more sustainable businesses that are true to us as Clinkett people that involve mariculture and ocean health, where we're looking at opportunities for our native foods or for resources you know, in Southeast Alaska used in a more sustainable way. Our trees are now committed to carbon banks and we earn money to just leave them alone and let them grow, um, which is a really great new way of looking of uses for that resources. So I'm excited for the next generations of leadership of Clinkett, Haida, Alaska Natives who are coming into these corporations with that new sort of vision for what those businesses should be. And that's going to be so important, not just for um, Alaska Natives who live in the small communities, but for everybody who lives in the small communities, because the, the failure of so many of our natural resources, fishing, timber, um, is, um, is devastating to entire communities. And we're seeing that all over, including here in, in Petersburg. Um, you know, it's just people and people having to move away because there's not jobs or a way of, of making a living. So hopefully with some yeah. of those new 
what, what some folks um, call green industries or green um, manufacturing um, endeavors, economic endeavors will help to bring people back. Um, so many of our so many of our people have had to move outside of their homelands into urban areas, if not urban areas within Alaska, then urban areas outside um, to Seattle, to New York, to Los Angeles, to and nothing to not to say anything bad about those urban centers, but that's not home. And if we have industries and ways of families being able to make a living here in their homelands, I'll tell you, people will come home. You know, when it comes to the resilience of cultures, people talk about it sometimes as if it's something that is in the past that has helped you persevere. And that is true. Clinkett culture is incredibly resilient and the value system and the ways of life that are sustainable, that are generational, um, those give you a grounding to stay healthy and strong in the face of your challenges. But resilience is also a flexibility and an adaptability that lets you be innovative and progressive. Clinkett culture, Alaska Native cultures, American Indian cultures, we were the original stewards of the land. We're the original ecologists and conservationists and the kind of innovations that have come out of native cultures have stood up the United States. So resilience is not just an historic idea that helps you heal through challenges, you know, which it definitely does. It's also a mindset about how you move forward that definitely applies in this day and age. Yep. And even in, even in my weaving, uh, you know, my weaving circle, we are having those discussions. What other resources can we use for weaving a Chilkat blanket or weaving a Raven's tail um, blanket? And, um, we're looking at a lot of different, we're looking at hemp cord that we can buy commercially. Um, and, you know, hemp is being grown in a very sustainable manner and is really very renewable and grows much faster than, than um, mountain goats or cedar bark. <laughs> so, um, so we're looking and I think coming back around, <coughs> excuse me, or using that, those alternative materials for teaching that's actually a really cool example, Deb, of that ingenuity of use of resources. And a big thanks to Nicole Hallingstead and Deborah O'Gara for letting us record that conversation. Um, we really appreciate the time and thought that goes into the conversations aired here on Voices of Sikakwan. Voices of Sitka Kwan is recorded and produced on Tlingit Ani, the historical homeland of the Tlingit people, but also the current homeland and the land that holds their future.
Thank you for joining us for Voices of Sitkaquan. This show is a collaboration between the Petersburg Indigenous Awareness Committee, KFSK Community Radio, and the Petersburg Public Library. It is made possible, in part, by a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services and the Alaska State Libraries, Archives, and Museums. It is also made possible by the generosity of our participants, including the volunteers on our content committee. We thank them for their enthusiasm and dedication. To participate in Voices of Sitkaquan, contact Kari Peterson at the Petersburg Public Library. Archives of past shows can also be found at sitkavoices.org. That's S-E-E-T-K-A voices.org. As well as on Spotify and Apple Media. Kanakchish. Hey, hey, hey.